Well, good morning, church. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, we continue a series called Never Ending, How God's Story Changes Yours. Now, when we come to Genesis 6 through 9 this morning, we have to remind ourselves that this is the longest section in the entire book of Genesis. We also come then to the forefront of one of the most popular Bible stories of all time. In fact, if you were to Google the ark, literally 4 million hits would show up on Google. If you were to Google Noah's ark, specifically in relation to kids' stories, over 8.7 million separate hits on Google. This is a popular, wild story. And interestingly enough, did you realize historically that there are over 270 different catastrophic stories about the flood throughout different civilizations? However, none of those 270s will give you the same ending that is found in Genesis 6 through 9. Modern intellectuals tell us that Noah is this legendary, fictitious figure, that his ark and animals are are really only a benefit in regard to children's stories and those sorts of things. But I'll remind you, church, that Jesus Christ himself considered Noah and the ark as an historical figure and fact. In fact, Jesus lists his story twice in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39, and Luke chapter 17, verse 26. No, the Bible is clear that there was an historical figure by the name of Noah, that he did build an ark, and that you and I, the only thing greater than our sin is God's grace. And that is why in our journeys together, before you walk out of here and do life, the one thing I want you to get is this. God's grace is greater than your sin. Genesis chapter 6. Why don't we study verses 5 through 8? Several different selected verses in this text, and then we'll end in Genesis 9, verse 13. And your Bible says this. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've even made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now previously, God had looked upon all of his creation and declared it very, very good in Genesis 1.31. But now, 10 generations, 1,600 years from Adam in Genesis 1, now the Bible says in Genesis 6 verse 5 that every idea and thought of man is intrinsically evil all the time. That all of the intentions and thoughts of their hearts are continually evil. In fact, this is the strongest statement of the human heart in the entire Old Testament. For relentless depravity in all forms was the cultural norm. And here you have a description of literally each and every one of us before we met Christ. And you have here God's reaction in verses 6 through 7. Moses gives us God's pain and his plan in these two verses. The first reaction mentioned of God in Genesis 6 is not rage or fury, but brokenness. God was not caught surprised or unaware of man's sinfulness, but rather God's heart was filled with pain and anguish. Why? Because God is by nature a patient Savior and Redeemer. 
Remember what Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 7, verse 17? But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not or would not forsake them. And so notice the reaction given in the text. It says in verse 6 that God regretted. He expresses here the most intense form of human emotion. It's used of God 34 separate times in the Old Testament and describes here a grave emotional pain. God was grieved and disappointed about what his creation had become. Why? Because you were made by God and for God. And thus, as a child of God, you belong to God. And when we choose to not represent God, our maker, when we choose to willingly and willfully disobey what God, our king, tells us to do, it grieves him to his very being because he's by nature a patient savior. I remember when I was growing up, my, my parents, specifically when I got into high school, you know, they, were, they were so gracious in, in allowing me time. I always had to be in by midnight, always. And sometimes it was 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And they never really asked me too much where I was going and what I was doing. But before I left the house, my mom and my dad would always say these two things. Maddie, remember who you are. And remember whose you are, son. Go. That's the exact impetus of this text. Don't you remember who you are? You are made by the God of the universe. All of his blessing that he's created. Yes, they're for you, but they're not about you. Remember who you are. Sometimes we forget that we're a beloved child of a king. And thus, we don't give our things to the trials of this world. Thus, our hearts can't be captivated by such minimal trivials as sinful lust or desires. Why? Because you were made for a king and by a king. That's why. You have to remember that you're a beloved child. And who you are leads to what you do. Remember whose you are. And so as we come to verse 7, God has no choice. We've discussed his pain in verse 6. Here's his plan. God had no choice to irrevocably judge his creation and their sinfulness. God must punish sin. And so that is why the Bible says in verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land. Literally, from the tips of the earth. I'm going to wipe them out, God says. For just as God created every living creature, now he will judge and completely remove them from the earth. God is patient with us. But there will come a time when a patient God says, Enough. Paul says it like this in Galatians 6, verse 7, you will reap what you sow. And in like manner of a God who's both a patient Savior and Redeemer, he is also just. And in the midst of this judgment comes one individual. And your Bible just casually introduces him in verse 8. Do you see it? And it says here, but... Noah. There's a drastic contrast in regard to content and character from verses 5 through 7, now verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Now, Noah, in my opinion, is the most underappreciated individual in the entire Old Testament. Very few people talk about Noah. Very few seminaries and institutions and literature about Noah. But did you realize that Noah is one of the most significant characters of God's story? In fact, he's listed over 50 times in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in 11 separate books. The first description we have of this man is also the first time grace appears in the entire Old Testament. And Noah found favor from the Lord. Favor here presupposes a relationship and can be translated as grace. Grace found Noah and changed Noah forever. You see, Noah was righteous. Noah was blameless, but he was not sinless. And thus, he deserved judgment as well. In fact, if you read in Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 and following, you know, after the flood and after the ark, things get a little awkward for Noah really, 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 really quickly. The point is, Noah is awesome, follow Noah. No, the point is, we have a good and gracious God. And the only thing greater than our sin, whether some of us who are stuck in our sin or some of us who are working through our sin, the only thing greater is God's grace. You see, you will never know that God's grace is sufficient until everything you have is insufficient. Let me say that another way. You will never know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And here we have the situation of our culture. Rampant, sinful rebellion is everywhere. But God found favor in Noah. You see, church, Noah needed God's grace to sustain him and his family to live a righteous and blameless life. And the same grace that sustained Noah's life can change yours today. The God-filled life is a grace-filled life. So fill your life with God and his promises. Fill your life with his word and truth. Because the God-filled life is a grace-filled life. God's grace is God's love to us. A love that overwhelmingly will radically change your life. God has a never-stopping, never-giving love toward you. And the truth of that love can radically change who you are from the inside out. In fact, James says it like this in James 4, 6, when he says literally here that God opposes the proud. Yet he provides grace to the humble. Humility in the Bible isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just simply thinking of yourself less. And so the moment that we come in and of ourselves and say, Lord, I need you, God abundantly provides The moment we say, Lord, life isn't about me, God instantly comes to us. And that's why James says in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. God's grace is his love to us. It's also his love in us. In fact, this radically changed Paul's life where he says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for God's power is made perfect in my weaknesses. That when I am weak, he is strong. That God provides unending mercy and comfort 
and wisdom to those who graciously call upon him, who admit that in my greatest weakness comes your greatest strength. God's grace is also his love through us. In fact, did you realize that in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 24, that Solomon, one of the wisest men in the entire Bible, literally says that your gracious words are like honeycomb, sweet to those around you. So who's one person this week, church? One person that you can communicate God's unending love to. God's never stopping, never giving up grace to. Who is it that you can show favor and kindness and love and point not to yourself but to God and allow God's grace and love to work to you and in you and through you? Why? Because the God-filled life is a grace-filled life. And it radically, one man changed the entire world through this principle. You say, how do you know? Look at verse 9. For the Bible says that these are the generations of Noah. For Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. Did you realize that in the original languages, verse 9, there's only 10 words here in the Hebrew. 10. If we were to describe your life in 10 words, what would people say? If we were to describe your passions, a summary, an epitaph of your journey, Here, in 10 words, what would God say about you? What would your family say about you? (laughs) I was was reading this week about some famous epitaphs. Mel Blanc, who who literally was the character of Bugs Bunny growing up. His epitaph, that's all, folks! Martin Luther King Jr., uh, one of our country's greatest statesmen. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty I'm free at last. Benjamin Franklin, one of the greatest minds our our country has ever had the experience to be exposed to, a founding father. Here lies Benjamin Franklin, food for worms. And then probably my favorite, the, the late comedian Rodney Dangerfield. It wasn't, I can't get no respect, right? It was, there goes the neighborhood. You have 10 words to describe your life. Your family has 10 words to describe you and your life. What would they say? And here's Noah, a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Noah is the first man in Scripture to be described as righteous. As the Bible sets the standard for righteousness by faith through Noah. It's of a word here, righteousness, to mean faithfully right before God. Having upright behavior that is acceptable to God. And righteousness is our most fundamental need before holy God. Righteousness is not something that individuals possess on their own. For righteousness is an attribute of God that comes from an activity by God. In other words, Noah was righteous because he lived by faith, by faith in God and in trusting his word. He knew intrinsically with all of his heart and being that God was the one true God. And thus, God would do what he told Noah he would do. And notice that conviction that Noah's personal relationship with the Lord. 
Notice how it led to an outward relationship with others. Noah was righteous before God. Look at verse 9 again. And he was blameless in his generation. It describes here the word blameless, free from defect, unblemished, complete. Where righteousness described Noah's relationship to God, blamelessness describes his moral uprightness and integrity before men. Simply put, Noah walked with God. Walk here is of a beautiful word in the original languages. It it describes here an, an orientation of life toward God. It describes here a minute by minute, hour by hour focus of one's mind that then led to a daily path and trajectory toward an intended goal. Noah walked with God. Now, something fascinating. This phrase is only described of one other individual in the Old Testament. Remember who it was? Noah's great-grandfather, Enoch, who literally walked with the Lord to glory. And so now, as his great-grandson is in a tumultuous, serious, strenuous time, he followed the Lord. He walked with God. And let me give you four principles. You want to walk with the Lord? Let me give you four principles from Noah's life. Number one, Noah took God's word more seriously than man's word. Did you realize that it probably took Noah at at minimum 100 years, could have been up to 120 years to build the ark? Did you realize that's literally 876,000 hours? If you went all the way to 120 years, it's over a million hours. Day after day after day, faithfully building something that no one had ever heard about or seen before. Secondly, it had never even rained more than likely at the time that God told him to build this huge ark, according to Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, and Hebrews 11, verse 7. You know, believe it or not, there are places in our country where it doesn't rain that much. Brynn and I were privileged to live in southeast New Mexico for five years. Southeast New Mexico gets about, on average, seven inches of precipitation a year of any kind. Our oldest son, Major, went 15 months of his life before it ever rained in southeast New Mexico. I still remember that night so vividly that, man, the rains came, and it was, it was amazing in the desert. And it, it could rain and rain really quickly. And it's just this thundering rain. And Brent and I, you know, we're kind of doing a little rain dance. Yeah, it's raining. And we look at our son, 15 months old, and the literal expression on his face is not joy but absolute terror. He had never in his life heard rain on the roof, and it terrified him. Noah had the similar reaction of individuals, had similar expressions and questions for over a hundred years. But Noah took God's word more seriously than man's. There is also fascinating enough in this text in Genesis 6 through 9, there is no evidence of God speaking to Noah while building the ark or during the months on the ark. So literally God comes to Noah and gives him a clear design. And then this man for a hundred years by faith faithfully trusts 
the design that God had given them over and over and over again. There was no Monday morning quarterback. There was no micromanagement. You have here a righteous and blameless man that is walking with the Lord. He then gets on the ark and it starts raining. And there's no evidence that the Lord talked to him, not one time. Not one. From that, you have a man here that took God's word more seriously than man's word. Which means that you and I, we must take God's word not as optional, but as the option. God's word is for you, but it's not about you. And so the moment that we come to this book, we have to give our entire mind to the work of the Lord. If you're here today and you say, well, what does that look like? You know, just get a good Bible reading plan, whether it's some you version or your app or, you know, check us out here in the information center. Start reading the word of God, 10 to 15 minutes, writing down what you're studying and then share faithfully what God is working in and through you. For Noah took God's word more seriously than man's. Secondly, Noah did all God commanded him to the best of his ability. Four separate times in Genesis 6 through 7, it says, and Noah did all that God commanded him. In Genesis 6, verse 22, in Genesis 7, verse 5, verse 9, and verse 16. Now, here's something amazing. There is nothing in Scripture that details to us that Noah had any nautical experience at all. There was no pre-qualification or orientation to do exactly what God commanded him to do. Nothing. He didn't have Chip Gaines. He didn't have Gilligan. He certainly wouldn't want Jack Sparrow. He didn't have any help at all. But yet he did exactly what God commanded him to do to the best of his abilities. Man, if we want to walk with the Lord, we need to do the same. We need to give God our first and our best. God is very much, are you ready for this? About the quality of his time with you and not necessarily the quantity. The moment you start checking a box with God, I'm gonna tell you, you begin to check out. And so give God your first and give God your best and begin walking with him. Noah did all God commanded him to the best of his ability. Number three, Noah completely and immediately trusted God. This is so important. Noah lived in the mountains. He was a mountain man, which means he probably had a great beard, right? Some strong coffee. No, no sailing training, right? You know, no kind of, weekends to Nantucket to be on the yacht. None of that. He also, you ready for this? The ark had no rudder. No rudder at all. Noah completely and immediately trusted the Lord from the inception of the design. God, you got to steer me. God, you got to sustain this vessel that you put in my heart. Here's something else fascinating. To me, this is, this is the beauty of Scripture. Ladies, Noah even had to trust God to shut the door of the ark, right? So they build this thing for 100 years. I mean, ridicule after ridicule after ridicule. You know, we always take it from Noah's perspective, but what about his three sons and their wives? What about Noah's wife, you know? She's she's the one that married the crazy mountain man that's building something no one's ever heard of for 100 years. And so they get on this ark, all these animals show up, it begins raining, and it's like... Does this not have a garage door opener? Does this not? Does it? 
No, you had to trust the Lord to shut the door. According to Genesis chapter 7, verse 16. What faith from a man who was completely and immediately trusting God. And if you want to walk with the Lord, God expects the same from you. Nothing less. Which means we have to be all in. And we have to immediately act when God prompts. If, if we're not careful here, we will give over to a casual Christianity that says that really, you know, God's obedience is progressive and, and that, you know, you know, God's word is, is a big deal. But, you know, if God's really telling you something to do, he just, you know, you can just kind of take your time on that. That's horrible advice. Obedience is not optional. If God tells you to do something, be all in. Act promptly. Move. That's the point. Noah walked with God, and he completely and immediately trusted God. I think finally, Noah faithfully spoke God's truth. Noah preached a faithful message for over a hundred years that no one believed. According to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Noah for a hundred years was faithfully preaching the gospel. That there's a God who loved you and who made you. And there is judgment coming through the flood. Don't really even know what that is, but it's coming. But safety is found on the ark. This massive, massive, massive sign of God's grace and favor towards you. Don't ignore God's blessing. Don't ignore God's messenger. In fact, there's room. There's lots of room. In fact, if there's not room, we'll throw the cats out, right? We'll make more room. Zero people listen to him. Zero. Only his three sons, their wives, and Noah's wife. And that's it. Here's the point. Noah was faithful to speak God's truth. Are we, in like manner, faithfully speaking and pointing people to God's truth? Are we pointing people to God's Son, who Jesus says, the truth shall set you free? If you're faithful, God is able. And that's really what faith is. Faith is God's life-changing gift to you when you give your life completely to him. God makes the impossible possible inside of us so then we can make the impossible possible on the outside. And we learn this through the life of Noah, who God says in verse 14, and make yourself an ark of gopher wood. God tells Noah in verses 14 through 18 two things. One, I'm going to give you a detailed design of a unique vessel that no one's ever seen of, no one's ever heard, and that no one even really comprehends. But do it, Noah. Because why? Because I'm also promising that I'm going to be with you and that I'm going to save you in the end. Noah is to build a wooden vessel, are you ready for this, of gopher wood. You want to know what gopher wood is? We don't even know. The only place gopher wood is found in the entire Bible is right here. It could be cypress. It could be pine. It might as well be Lincoln Logs. No one knows what this thing is. And with this gopher wood, he is to build an ark. 
What's an ark? You know, the funny thing is, I can relate to this. When I was 16 years old, I was growing up in Blanchard, Oklahoma. And man, I was finally, according to the state of Oklahoma, old enough, not necessarily responsible enough, but old enough to drive. And so I got my license. And my parents, they didn't give me a new car. They didn't give me any car. In fact, for a year, I drove their cars and put gas in their cars. Why? Because it's their cars, not my car. So when I turned 17, my dad shows up one day and says, Maddie, today you're going to get a car. Actually, it's my car, son, but you're going to be able to drive it around town. So I tell all of my buddies, all of my buddies, I'm getting a car today. I'm getting a car today. So my birthday's in April. So after baseball practice, I had myself and 10 buddies show up to my house. And here comes my dad in this. What is this? This is a 1984 Pontiac 6000. It didn't even look like this. It was some sort of red that isn't even identifiable, all right? Think of like the worst red you've ever seen. For some of you in the room, that's not that hard to figure out. And then times that by 1,000, it was that bad. Then take the paint job on this thing. Like literally we took our GA ministry here at our church and then blindfolded them and then they painted our car. That's how bad this thing was. It had a, a huge kind of space in the back, which was cool because I could pile up all my buddies in it. And the bass on the radio station was great. And I'm walking around this car. My dad's like, huh? 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 Yeah? Yeah? What do you think? And so I look at him and look at my friends and they leave. They're gone. And my dad says, Maddie, this is your car. And I said, Dad, this is a big piece of junk. That's what this is. You want to know what the ark means in the Hebrew? Pretty much that. Big piece of junk. That's what this is. It, it can be translated box, chest. In the Egyptian culture, it was of the word coffin. Did you realize that in Noah's day that most boats were used only for fishing or for hunting, and they were no longer than 10 feet? In fact, historically, the longest known boat at the time was only 170 feet. And it almost always navigated within sight of land. It was not a seaworthy vessel. But in light of that, God tells Noah to build an ark. According to verse 15, 300 cubits in its length, 50 cubits in its breadth, and 30 cubits in its height. You say, well, what's a cubit? It's about 18 inches, which means that the ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It had three decks and one door. Now, something else interesting, the ark was considerably larger than Columbus's vessels in discovering the new world, the Nina, the Penta, and the Santa Maria. For the ark was 1.5 million cubic feet, 43,000 tons, and covers one and a half football fields, and approximately 75,000 different animals could reside on the ark. Like I said, no cats. <laughs> but that's not the, the focal point. In Genesis 6. The focal point isn't on the size of the ark. Or even how big the ark was. Or even what is an ark? You see, the ark was the means of safety and refuge 
from the judgment of God. The ark protected Noah and his family as all who were outside the ark perished. You see, maybe you've heard sermon after sermon on this illustration, and, and you've heard that no, Jesus is the door, the door that God closes in, in Genesis 7, verse 16. No, Jesus is not just the door. Jesus is the ark. In fact, Jesus is the greater ark who rescues us. Just as the ark provided safety from the judgment of God, Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes to the Father comes through me. That the moment that we place our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God's judgment is shielded by his grace through faith in his Son. Just as Noah's family was brought to safety because they, by faith, built this ark over hundreds of years and survived the flood. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18 of the Lord that Christ suffered once for sins for the righteous and the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That Jesus graciously and intently brings us to the Father himself. For Jesus is the greater ark who rescues us. And the only thing greater than our sin is God's grace through his son, sealed by a promise of God himself. Now, don't turn there, but listen to this. This story doesn't end. Noah forms this ark a hundred years, day by day by day, builds this magnanimous vehicle of God's favor and grace. And the rain comes, and thus the judgment comes. And all perish. Everyone who wasn't on the ark. And then God, over time, brings them to a place of refuge on Mount Ararat. And after a time of worship, he tells in Genesis 9, verse 13, a promise that he began in Genesis 6, 18. And he says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God says, I'm going to give a physical side of my promise to you, that there will be a rainbow in the sky. And every time you look at that rainbow, it's going to remind you, Noah and all generations who come forward of my blessing and my grace and my promise to you to never destroy the earth. And this means again. The fascinating thing is, is that the Hebrew word for bow In Genesis 9, 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of my covenant is not rainbow. There is not a Hebrew word for rainbow in the entire Bible. The word translated there, church, is geset. It describes a battle bow, an emblem of wrath, a weapon of war. The flood waters would subside, but God's Love and grace will never evaporate. Why? Because God chose to set aside his bow so all the world would know that Jesus saves. God says, I will no longer judge the world in this way because I will shoot my arrow of judgment and wrath into my son. And there will be a place and a time 
Well, I will take all of man's sin, their past, present, and future, and I will place it upon my substitute, my son. And his sacrifice will be sufficient. Sufficient to the point where I will hang up my bow once and for all. And I'll give you a sign in a rainbow. And just as a rainbow is so beautifully set in the clouds after a storm, every time we see a rainbow, it reminds us of the great cost of God's grace and fulfillment of his promise to hang up his battle bow against us once and for all for those who find grace in Jesus Christ. Now you know why there are 270 different stories of a catastrophic flood throughout time. There's only one that has an ending like this. That the only thing greater than our sin is God's grace. And so may we never see a rainbow the same again. Every time we see a rainbow, church, it is a reminder that God loves me, that God gave himself for me, that God is for me and will never leave me, for God promises so. There is no ending to God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. Just a beginning. Church, as we walk out of here and do life, once again, are you ready to begin? Because God's grace is greater than your sin.